open my lips that my mouth may proclaim your praise. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. So we're in our third week of our waiting season, of our Advent season. We've got our pink candle, our Gaudete or Rejoice candle, as you probably heard in a lot of those readings. It's about rejoicing in what the Lord will do, has done, has promised that he will do. Last week we started to look at um, the conception and birth of John the Baptist how the promise came uh, for a miraculous birth for Zechariah and Elizabeth as they were much older, um, and indeed that was fulfilled. This week, we're going to be looking at his actual ministry. We're going to kind of pick up a little bit on last week's gospel reading about John's ministry and on this week's reading, because John is absolutely pivotal in the narrative, in the story about Jesus' birth. Um, because John straddles both the Old Testament world and the New Testament world. He's at the bridge point, and he is critical because he, in the way of the prophets of old, and there hasn't been one in Israel for over 400 years, he continues in that mold to call the people to repentance. And yet he's always pointing forward, preparing the way for the one who is to come. He's about 30 years old when he starts this ministry. There's just six months difference between he and his cousin or relative, Jesus. And so as we see Jesus' ministry about to begin, uh, so John's has begun because he's the messenger that goes before. He's the one who witnesses to the one who will come. He never points to himself. In fact, when the people start to think that he's maybe the Messiah, um, he says, absolutely not. There is one who's coming, the thongs of whose sandals I am even unworthy to untie. So he's a man, he's a person who is always pointing away from himself to somebody else. This is what was prophesied over him by his father, Zechariah, at his birth. You remember last time we sang the canticle um, of Zechariah. And initially, when the baby is born, he breaks out into great rejoicing and praise and worship to God of of, uh, what God has done. And then he goes and he speaks this prophecy over the baby. You, my child, shall be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his way, to give his people knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins. In the tender compassion of our God, the dawn from on high shall break upon us to shine on those who dwell in darkness and the shadow of death and to guide our feet into the way of truth. And Luke, unique amongst the gospel writers, actually sets, because he's interested in making um, a a progression, a, a linear historical narrative 
of this time. He sets this time, he sets John's time within the context of what's going on historically around him. He, he mentions the Roman governor, who is Pontius Pilate. He mentions the two Herodian kings, who are really sham kings. And he mentions a couple of other people, so that we can actually place him on a historical timeline. We know when this all takes place. And he says, at this particular point in history... At this time, the word of God came to John in the wilderness. He went into all the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And so placed in a historical timeline, John goes out of the city, out of Jerusalem, away from the the surrounds of the temple to the Jordan River. And it's there where crowds of people are coming to repent and then to be baptized. Baptism or a cleansing by water was not new to the Jewish people because there were huge basins, baths outside the temple. And so they would do their individual ablutions before going in to worship. They would wash their faces and their hands and their feet before going in to worship. And there was another full immersion cleansing or or pre-baptism for those who were God-fearers who were actually not Jewish but who wanted to become Jewish, who were on the outside but who wanted to be incorporated into the people of God, into the chosen people, into Israel. And so they would go through this preparation and they would be baptized. But John's baptism is very different. First of all, it's in community. There are a whole number of people involved, but he's the one who's baptizing. He is actually baptizing them in the Jordan. And it's not for outsiders to come in. It's a baptism of repentance for those who are already on the inside. It's those who are already of the lineage of Abraham. They are the ones who are being called to repentance. And so they're being baptized for their sins once they have repented. And he says, do you think that God could not raise up from these stones sons and daughters of Abraham because the people have rested on their laurels? They've said, well, we're, you know, we're the chosen people. So, you know, we don't need to do anything. We just are. We, we, we're fine the way we are. We've got the temple, you know, we've got the sacrifices. Um, you know, we don't need to do anything. And John says, no, actually, things are required of you. Fruits of repentance, fruits of repentance are required of you because the axe is at the root of the tree if this does not happen. So he's calling them to this reorientation of their lives, repentance. Um, the word there is metanoia, which basically means if you're, going, if you're going on a journey and you realize that you're going in completely the wrong direction, then you've got to turn around and go back in the right direction so that you get correctly to your destination. It's a reorienting of lives. 
It's a turning around, going in a new and a better direction in our lives. And so in baptizing, in doing all of these things, John is in effect always in all that he does preparing the way for somebody else. He's fulfilling that prophecy that God spoke through Isaiah. Prepare the way of the Lord. May the mountains be made low and the valleys lifted up. See, when when the king would enter back into a town, uh, the townsfolk would go out and fill in all of the potholes so that as the king entered, there was a level pathway for him to come in on. Well, this is the king of kings. And so Isaiah is saying, may the mountains be made low and the valleys lifted up. So there's a level pathway, this amazing hugeness of this vision, for the king, who is the king of kings, to come in on. So John is always about this preparing the way. Uh, For the Messiah who will come with a different baptism... For his baptism will be by the Holy Spirit and with fire. So John's baptism, a baptism in water for the forgiveness of sins upon repentance. The baptism that Jesus brings is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and with fire for, for internal spiritual uh, tr- uh, work of transformation. The strength of the Holy Spirit to transform our lives. Jesus will come, the Messiah will come with a baptism of the Holy Spirit and with fire. But John goes out and he's at the Jordan, he's baptizing, and so all of these things are to prepare the way of the Messiah who is Jesus, the King, who is to come. First of all, because he's offering a baptism of forgiveness after the repentance. And in doing so, outside of the temple, outside of Jerusalem, He's basically saying, you don't need the temple. Because the temple then was the only place for the forgiveness of sins. You'd go to the temple for the sacrificial system. And of course, Jesus afterwards, Jesus is the temple. His body is the temple of God. And so what was is no longer valid. And John is preparing that way for the people by baptizing outside of the city, outside of the temple. He's basically challenging the whole temple narrative, the whole way the temple and the high priesthood looks at how things should be. And of course, Jesus comes and challenges that even more. But John is challenging that now in this way. Secondly, there's a significant, there's a symbolic significance to the Jordan. See, the Jordan uh, brings back the history of the people of God. Because the Jordan, remember, is the river that they crossed over when they finally came into the promised land out of slavery. They'd been brought through waters, again, this whole water image and baptism image, and that water coming through water brings us out of slavery into new life. They'd been brought out of slavery in Egypt into new life, but then they'd send out one person from each of the 12 tribes into the promised land, 
to see whether or not they could go in and conquer the land. And of those 12, only two came back saying that God indeed was greater and God, we should trust in God and God will provide for them to conquer this land. Ten came back and said there are giants there, we can't do it. And so that was the reason for their 40 years wandering in the wilderness. But the Jordan is that which was crossed when they finally came in and took possession of the land that had always been promised them. And the one who led them was one of the two spies that went out and said, yes, God is greater, trust him, he will do it and he can do it. And that was Joshua. So the Jordan is this uh, river through which they have passed out of their slavery in Egypt into the promised land. Not only that, but if you remember in the Old Testament as well, Naaman the Syrian has been struck with leprosy. And this young Jewish girl, a servant, a maid of his wife in the house, who um, is very fond of her master and mistress, and says, You know, oh, that my Lord could go to Israel because the prophet there could heal him. And he goes to Israel and he goes and he finds Elisha and Elisha tells him to bathe in the Jordan River. And he's affronted by this. He says, we've got better rivers back where I come from. Isn't he going to come out and say some magic incantation or word over me and make me well? And finally, he's persuaded by his servant to go and bathe in the river. And in the Jordan, in bathing in the waters of the Jordan River, he is healed of his leprosy. So the river is symbolic of homecoming. It's symbolic of healing. All of these things are going on to prepare the one who will bring us home, who provides healing, of all of ourselves. And the fourth is, is that he challenges the people to bear fruits worthy of repentance. There's a cartoon that shows a skeptic shouting up to the heavens, God, if you're up there, tell us what we should do. Back comes a voice, feed the hungry, house the homeless, establish justice, The skeptic looks alarmed. Just testing, he says. Me too, the voice replies. See, both John and Jesus are clear that judgment and mercy arrive with the coming of the king, with the king's appearing, with the Messiah coming amongst his people. The axe is set at the root of the tree for those who are content to rest on their laurels, thinking just because they are sons and daughters of Abraham, nothing more is required of them. Repentance for forgiveness of sins homecoming, healing, fruit-bearing. This was the promise. These were things promised and foretold by the prophets. Indeed, today in our reading from Zephaniah, sing aloud, O daughter Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgment against you. 
He has turned away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall fear disaster no more. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Do not fear, O Zion. Do not let your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst. A warrior who gives victory. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will renew you in his love. He will exult over you with loud singing as on a day of festival. Do you know that? Do you know that the Lord rejoices over you with gladness? The Lord exults over you with loud singing. The Lord will renew you in his love. Let that settle into you. The Lord exalts over you. The Lord rejoices over you. Yes, you. Each and every one. Don't let your heart say, but not me. That's the enemy speaking. Yes, you. Each and every one. The Lord rejoices over you. The Lord exalts over you. And he will renew his love in you. Day by day. Hold on to that this week. Take that page home with you. Pray that every morning. The Lord rejoices over you. The Lord exalts over you and will renew your love. He says, at that time I will bring you home. I will gather you. A homecoming. So, in this waiting time, in this preparing time, in this looking to promise time, We're to look to how John prepared the way for the one who was to come. And we're to prepare our hearts likewise. We're to reorient our lives. If they've gone off a little bit in a direction that they're not supposed to have gone and the Lord will speak through his Holy Spirit in our hearts, to tell us if that is true. If we've gone off on one of the side paths and not stayed on the king's highway, then let's reorient our lives. Let's turn back from the wrong direction, go again in the right direction. And we're to remember again that the waters of baptism were the healing gift of freedom from the slavery of sin and eternal death. That is ours. That is our heritage through baptism. That we have already received the healing of eternal life and the forgiveness of sins. We're not to rest on our laurels like the Jews who are saying, I'm just a son or daughter of Abraham. We're not to say, well, I've been saved, done, dusted, that's it. Paul actually uses the ongoing, I am being saved. In other words, this is, this, is, this, this is an ongoing event for us. We are to bear fruit of repentance, to do justice, to love mercy, to walk humbly with our God, to show forth in our lives the fruit of, re- of repentance. And we are, like John, to be messengers, 
witnesses. In other words, the center of our life is always to be the one to whom we point, not to ourselves. We are to point away from ourselves to the one who came, who will come, who is to come again, and only to him. To make God's deeds known, says Isaiah, known among the people, to see that they remember that his name is exalted, to sing the praises of the Lord, for he has done great things, and this is known in all the world. We're to cry aloud, to ring out our joy, for the great one in the midst of us is the Holy One of Israel. We are to be a rejoicing people, says Paul in his letter to the Philippians. We are to show forth our gentleness and our thankfulness in our lives. Because there's nothing more appealing than somebody who is filled with joy. And people who are still in darkness look and say, look how that person is so filled with joy. And these things have happened but they're at peace. Because peace is not the absence of trouble, it's the presence of Christ in the midst of trouble. In this world you will have trouble, he said, but do not fear, for I am with you. See, that's the peace that passes all understanding, is that as we go through trials and troubles and suffering and cares, as we do, as is our human lot, as we do as humans, The peace of Christ is promised to us if we are in prayer. If we continue to pray to God in the praying to God, peace descends like a river. And people will say, look at those Christians. Look how they rejoice. Look how gentle they are. Look how thankful to God that they are. Look how filled with peace they are. Because their hope is not found here. Their hope is not found in earthly things. They're living full lives in the middle of this world. And yet they seem untouched. Because there are people rejoicing. A people peace-filled. A gentle and thankful people. That's our witness. That's our witness, like John's witness was. That's, that's our witness. May we be that people who bear the fruit of repentance, who keep orienting our lives back, who point away from ourselves unto the one, the King who comes, did come, will come again. Amen. Let us stand and affirm our faith in the words of the Nicene Creed on page 358 in the Book of Common Prayer. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only